And we are going to be in our series, Jesus in Genesis. And we are taking a, not verse by verse by verse by verse without skipping any approach, but we are hitting the major texts and major themes of Genesis because it's a very long book. So we won't leave anything out that's of importance and uh, we will reference the parts that we do not specifically dig into. Uh, But today, we are actually going to jump into verses 2, 1 to 3. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. So I'll read it, and we'll jump right in and begin our sermon this evening. Uh, Josh, if you could do me a favor and hit start on that little timer there so I don't preach for three hours and think it's been 20 minutes. Thank you. The whole congregation thanks you right now. All right, Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. A very familiar text, but maybe you've not thought out all of its implications and its biblical theology thread that traces from this text all the way through the 39 books of the Old Testament in through the 27 books of the New Testament into Revelation and then into eternity. That's what we call biblical theology. We trace a line or a a thread or a theme through the entire scripture uh, and we see how it relates to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do with this text right now. So the heavens and the earth were created in six days. Uh, I I am a literal six-day guy, so I'll put my cards on the table. I think that the, the heavens and the earth and the stars, the universe itself was created in six literal days. 24-hour days, Uh, and I I am familiar with all the controversies uh, in a series in the past called Theology Untangled. I did a message called uh, The Age of the Earth, so I'm aware of all the arguments. You can go back on the website and listen to that. Uh, As a little teaser, I also talk about the Nephilim in there, Uh, and and so those were the giants that uh, roamed the earth before the flood and even after. Uh, So you can go back into the Theology Untangled series and, and listen to that. But on the seventh day, we learn here that God was finished with his work. And as an artist steps back from a painting or steps back from a sculpture and admires, so God steps back and admires his creative genius. This is very good, God says. And he is pleased with what he has made. And he rests from his work. He ceases to create on day seven. Now those of you who are familiar with the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, numbers do have meaning. It's not just a book of the Bible. Uh, They actually do have meaning. So number seven means when you see it throughout the scriptures, it's the number of completion. It means perfection, completion, fullness. And so here on the seventh day, God is finished 
and his work is complete, it is perfect, it is without flaw, it is very good. And the seventh day, as we think about it, actually starts in the evening. If you read through the Genesis account, you'll see, and there was evening and there was morning on this day. There was evening and there was morning on this day. There's evening and there's morning on this day. Uh, in the Hebrew mind, the day started at 6 p.m. in the evening. So it was like our beginning of uh, 12 p.m. You know, it starts the new day. Well, 6 p.m. starts in the evening and then 6 uh, p.m. the next day or, you know, 5.59 was like uh, 11.59 to us. And so evening and morning, evening and morning. So here, uh, the Sabbath is actually Friday night, as we know it, into Saturday would have been the seventh day. And so God rests. He ceases to work. But what we know from the New Testament and just from logic, God didn't cease the work of upholding the universe. Because if he did, everything would fall apart. So we believe in the law of gravity, but the law of gravity is not autonomous, is it? It doesn't function on its own minus God. God is behind all of the physics of the universe. God is behind the spinning of our solar system around our yellow dwarf star. God is the power or energy in the Milky Way that keeps it spinning and all the other billions of galaxies out there with their billions of stars and other planets. God is upholding the universe. And so in that sense, God did not cease to work because he upholds all things. In fact, Jesus mentions this in the New Testament. He says, my father has been working since the beginning and I am working. And he says this on the Sabbath. And we'll get into that in a minute. But we know from Colossians and Hebrews that Jesus was the agent by which God created the universe. And in Hebrews specifically, it says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. His, his essence, his power upholds the energy that keeps the molecules, the atoms in being, if you will. Paul, excuse me, Paul says it like this, in him, God, we live and move and have our being. So if you'd like to think about all of us we are inside, if you will, location-wise, God's presence. We often, in worship gatherings, we, we might sing, Oh God, come and be present with us. And that's, in a sense, I get that. That's right. But the truth is, we are always in God's presence. Where can I go from your presence? If I go to the depths of the sea, you are there. If I take uh, the wings of the dawn, as Psalm 139 says, you are there. We can't escape God's presence. And so we should think of ourselves in God's presence, not God coming to be with us in our presence. We got it backwards. Because it's only in God that we live and move and have being itself. He upholds our very essence. No God, no life. No God, no movement. No God, no being, period. No beetles, no aardvarks, no hawks, no vultures, and sadly, no dark roasted Arabica beans from Uganda. No God, nothing. And so we live and move and have our being in God. And here we see Moses giving us a summary. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. 
and the host of them. That means all the stars, the, the, the billions of galaxies that exist. It's interesting that you know now we are launching telescopes into space so they can see further. And you know what happens every time we see further? There's more out there. And, and, and we are just astounded at the distance between us and the next galaxy. But then there's billions of galaxies spanning billions and billions of light years. And God simply spoke and they came to be. He, he calls each star out by name, the psalmist says. And we think, how can that be? That's why God is worthy of worship and you are not. That's why we sing to him, right? You have no glory, you have no weight compared to God, right? But God is weighty and glorious and worthy of worship just for the things that he has created. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. There's not a language on earth that doesn't hear the sound of their voice. And I'm paraphrasing, but God speaks in his creation, general revelation. And here we see specific revelation in the scriptures. And on the seventh day, verse two, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, rested means he stopped his creation. It was done. But as we just said, he didn't stop as in pulling back and becoming distant. He, he's not the God of the deists who wound up the universe and then just let it run on its own and set up its own laws and he is distant and distinct and not involved. No, he is completely involved. Such that the psalmist in 139 can say, before a word's on my tongue, you know it completely. All of my days written in your book before one of them came to be. That's how involved God is. He's very involved. Verse three, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's an important word. In fact, uh, that word is only holy. That word is, is only here in Genesis. And I'm going to read you from uh, Willem van Gemeren. He's an Old Testament scholar. Here's what he says about that word holy. It is remarkable that the word holy attributed to the Sabbath occurs only here in Genesis. Though it is a key word in the Pentateuch, which means the first five books of the Bible, Penta, five, book in five parts, Pentateuch, uh, by using the word holy to designate the rest God provides, we are helped to understand that the sanctity of the Sabbath is intended to be a gracious expression of God's concern for his people, rather than a legalistic burden to be carried out by human efforts, okay? So he sees here in the word holy, the rest that God provides. God created a pattern here of rest on the seventh day. And then as we move through the Bible, we see that the Sabbath is created on the seventh day and it's grounded in our text here. So now we're gonna begin to move through the Bible. So in, Je in Exodus 16, we see the Sabbath beginning to emerge. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, by the end of Genesis, uh, Israel, who was Jacob, name changed to Israel, has 12 sons, 
And he has a large family by the end of Genesis. And they are now in Egypt because there was a famine and they were going to starve. But God provided for Israel and his family through his son, Joseph, who was sold into Egypt uh, as a slave by his brothers. But yet God was behind the whole thing. Uh, and, and Joseph himself said, what you meant for evil, putting me in a pit, selling me into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. And so Exodus then opens up with the children of Israel multiplying throughout Egypt. And there's a new Pharaoh, a new king of Egypt who forgets what Joseph has done. And he's threatened by all these ethnic Jewish people spreading throughout Egypt. And he thinks to himself, if they wanted to, they could overpower us. So we need to oppress them. And so they do for 400 years. They enslave the Jewish people and they make them build. They make them build the pyramids. They make them build uh, up, up the different parts of Egypt. And some of those structures still are there today. It's amazing. But God delivers the Jewish people, doesn't he? Through Moses. And Moses extracts the people of Israel by God's help after the 10 plagues, after the Passover lamb and the death of the firstborn son, and then the drowning of the, uh, the, the Egyptians and Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And so now in, in Exodus 16, here's the setting. The children of Israel are in the desert. They're hungry. There is millions of of Jewish people and cattle and sheep. And, and they're like, we're going to starve. We're going to die out here in the wilderness. Wasn't it better in Egypt where we at least had food and, and the cattle could eat the grass? And why have you brought us out here into this wilderness to die, Moses? And so we pick up. What happens is God gives them miraculous manna. Manna, M-A-N-N-A. And it's a frost-like thing. Exodus 16, 14, a frost-like thing that appears on the desert floor. And as they gather it, it is full of nutrients, it is full of vitamins, and it has a honey taste. And so it is, if you will, like flour. I think of it like flour. They would grind it up and they put it in everything. You know, oh, there's a scorpion. Let's mix that with the manna. And you, manna scorpion, this is great. You know, and there's some, there's some desert spider over there. Let's, let's make some spider manna, you know. And so they, they flavor the manna with whatever they can find in the desert. Is that peyote over there? Fantastic, you know. Some of you druggies, you wish you were there, right? Okay. It's a flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Fine as frost on the ground. And they were only to gather enough. I know some of you are thinking, Chris, how do you know about peyote? <laughs> Don't ask. They were just to gather enough for the day. And then God would provide them a new set of manna in the morning, every single morning. And you know what happened if they saved it overnight? It would breed maggots and it would stink and it would be rotten. So they were forced to trust God every morning for new manna. But on the sixth day, there was a special command. Now let's read Exodus 16, 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, manna, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, 
a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now, what is going on here is God is beginning to institute the Sabbath, okay? And there's going to be a command that comes later. We know it as the fourth command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's in the Ten Commandments. But what God is doing is he's actually giving them a gift here because for 400 years, they were working seven days a week, 365 days a year. And God says, I give you a day of rest as a gift. That's what I'm going to do for you. In fact, I'm going to make sure you take a day and I'm going to command it. So you get to recharge and rest and you have to trust me to provide for you on this day. And that's what's happening here. Now, if we jump just four chapters later, we have the Ten Commandments. Where are the Ten Commandments in the Bible? Exodus 20, also in Deuteronomy. And commandment number four is this. Remember the Sabbath day, the seventh day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That means separate from the other six days. Keep it separate. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, meaning to rest. That's what Sabbath means. To the Lord, your God. On it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. Like no oxes plowing the field. No donkeys carrying burdens. No animals working either. Everyone gets a break on the seventh day. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. That means non-Israelites. This also applies to the Gentiles uh, who are within the Israelite camp. For now, he grounds, God grounds his command in creation. Look at this, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth. Genesis 2, 1. The sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so here we see God in the Ten Commandments blessing the seventh day, again, Friday night, what we think of into uh, Saturday. And he says, this is a day of rest. You are to treat this day special. You are to not work on it and you're not to have anyone else work on it, not even your animals. It's a day of holy rest because on the seventh day, God rested. And so you are to rest as a pattern of God's resting and trust him that he will take care of you on that seventh day. You don't have to go out and earn money seven days a week. Now, we could go through the prophets and we could go through the failure of the Jewish people to keep the Sabbath. Uh, they, they were very serious. Uh, God was very serious, rather, about them keeping the Sabbath. So serious 
that he commanded the death penalty if you didn't keep it. You're like, really? A capital offense for breaking the Sabbath? Yeah. Exodus 31, 12 to 17. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, plural. Now, there were more than one Sabbath. There was uh, the seventh year Sabbath. There were land Sabbaths. There were special days that the Israelites were supposed to celebrate, like Passover and other times where they were not supposed to work, but gather and feast. So Sabbaths, plural. But here we're going to get into the seventh day Sabbath next. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now, what you might have missed there in verse 13, the Sabbath is actually a sign of the covenant that God makes with them at Sinai. You are to be my people. I am your God. You are to keep these laws. And if you keep them, Deuteronomy 30, if you keep them, blessing will happen for you. Yes, we will keep all the words of the covenant. Okay. The Sabbath is the sign of the covenant. So you're my people. You're under my law, under my rule, dietary, ceremonial, civil laws, moral law. What's the sign of the covenant? The Sabbath. Don't break the Sabbath because I, the Lord, have set you apart. That's what sanctify you means. I have set you apart. You are different than all the other peoples on the planet. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you, meaning separate, special. We say holy days, right? Holidays, holy days, like Easter and Christmas and not Halloween, right? (laughs) Everyone who, now, now listen, look, verse 14, look at this. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Dang. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people, meaning cut off, executed. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. I mean, how many times does he have to repeat himself? Therefore, The people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant. There it is. As a covenant forever. Forever? It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, here he's grounding it in creation again, in six days, The Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, that refreshed doesn't mean like you jump into a swimming pool when it's 90 degrees on. You're like, oh, I feel so much better. God doesn't get depleted like us, okay? Uh, Refreshed as in observing what he made, enjoying what he made. Behold, this is very good. So for the Jewish people, the Sabbath was a sign that they were under the law and they were under God's law. And this was the covenant that they were to be uh, keeping with God. Now, by the time the Old Testament closes and in between the New Testament, we have what's called the intertestamental period, the intertestamental period. Uh, There was a large gap of time between Malachi 
and Matthew, okay, if you want to think about our English Bibles. And the Sabbath came to represent something that God never intended it to represent. In fact, uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary helps us here. I'll read this for you. It's very interesting. Intertestamental writings detailed Sabbath restrictions and recorded military losses resulting from Sabbath observances. The Damascus document dating to the first century, so first century BC, that's right before Jesus came, first century BC, before Christ, outlines several limits to activities on the Sabbath, including walking a thousand cubits. I mean, what's a cubit? Well, it was the length between your middle finger and your elbow. Well, mine's a big cubit, right? <laughs> Maybe you have a smaller cubit. So it was between 17 and 21 inches, roughly, okay? So you could only walk 100 cubits. Man, that's not a lot of walking. You better not get on that treadmill. You better get off that, that treadmill. Drinking outside the camp. Drawing water into any vessel. No Brita filter. Nope. Wearing perfume. Sorry, no cologne. Opening a sealed vessel. No pickles. That's sad. Assisting an animal to give birth or helping an animal out of, pit, out of a pit. So Fluffy falls in a pit. No, Fluffy, I can't help you. And so like you sit and encourage Fluffy until six o'clock. Then you jump in and you help Fluffy out. Having sexual relations. All the married people, dang. The book of Jubilees, second century BC, so that's before the first. So remember, before Christ, we, the closer we get, the lesser the number, adds further prohibitions. Plowing a field, starting a fire, riding an animal, riding in a boat, killing anything. Not even a spider, tarantula, or scorpion. Anything. Or making war. You can make war the day before the Sabbath and after the Sabbath. Can't make war on the Sabbath. Now, what I find fascinating is Jesus comes on the scene with all these regulations. Okay, just here's the way that the Pharisees uh, treated the law of God. They were meticulous in their observance of the law, such that Jesus criticized them for tithing from their spices. Right? I have a whole cupboard full of cumin and sesame seeds and ginger. And so they're like, all right, it's about a tenth. And, and so they were so meticulous about tithing everything. And yet Jesus criticized them for being hypocrites because they loved outward appearance and glory and neglected inward realities of spirituality and closeness with God. So Jesus comes in and he breaks intentionally their Sabbath rules. He just steps all over them and they get mad at him a lot such that they decide they're going to kill him. They like, didn't Moses say we could kill anyone who does. Let's kill this guy. So let's do Mark two and look at it. One Sabbath, Jesus, he was going through the grain fields. Now uh, in the middle of fields in this day, there were hard paths for walking uh, if you've ever been in a, a developing nation and you've been in the, the rural parts, which I have, uh, there's fields everywhere and there's paths that you walk in between the field, uh, in between the crops. And so this is what was happening. Jesus was walking in between grain fields. 
And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So like, you know, the, the fluffy part of the weed at the top, they're just popping little tops of it off. And inside that caterpillar looking top, there's little kernels of grain, which we grind up and make flour. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? Now, Jesus is, is appealing to the Old Testament here, and he's appealing to a story about David that they would have known. Of course they read it. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered, that X should be synagogue. I have no idea why it's an X. <laughs> well, blame it on a demon. I have no idea. <laughs> How he entered, it's not the synagogue, it's actually the temple, okay? The temple of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence. Now, the bread of the presence was uh, the 12 loaves that were put out every Sabbath, and they were replaced every week, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And so in the, uh, the Pentateuch, the laws are given for the priestly service, and only the priests are supposed to eat certain offerings, and they're only supposed to eat this bread of the presence. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Like David and his people ate the bread of the presence. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Uh, William Lane, who's a, a Mark scholar, he, he says this about uh, this verse. The fact that God does not condemn David for his action indicates that the narrowness with which the scribes interpreted the law was not in accordance with the tenor of Scripture. Jesus argues that the tradition of the Pharisees is unduly, unduly stringent and exceeds the intention of the law. Now, here's how I would say it in a non-scholarly way. God cared more about David and his men and sustaining them than he did about the ritual bread of the presence. He cared more that they were hungry and famished and that they got fed and nourished than God was concerned about them breaking the ritual rule of the bread of the presence. And so Jesus is likening what just happened here, bread, grain, they're harvesting grain, they're popping little grain kernels in their mouth. And he's like, look, didn't David do this and he was not condemned? Like, why are you condemning my disciples for harvesting, quote unquote, on the Sabbath. And what's remarkable here is verse 28. He calls himself the Son of Man, which comes from Daniel chapter 7, and it is the title of the one who would inherit the nations and rule over them and receive this inheritance from the Most High, God himself. So he calls himself the Son of Man, and then not only that, he says, I am Lord, or I am the ruler or authority, over the Sabbath. I rule over the Sabbath. The Sabbath doesn't rule over me. And by the way, here's the right interpretation of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. 
And see, what the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes had done is they took the Sabbath and they loaded it up with rules and regulations, and then they heaped those heavy burdens on the people and said, you must keep the Sabbath this way. Meanwhile, God gave it as a gift, a day of rest. He didn't want it to become a day of extra work. He wanted them to take a break, take a day off. That was the point of the Sabbath. Now, what I find fascinating is Jesus intentionally and repeatedly violated their Sabbath rules. In fact, if we were to just jump another chapter ahead in Mark, again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, a, a crippled hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. You know, is he going to heal him? Why? So that they might accuse him. They want to get him. They want to accuse him. They know he heals. They know he's a healer. They know he's got the power to heal. They're concerned it's the wrong day to heal. We're going to get him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. <laughs> come here, buddy. And he's looking them all in the eye. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Man, what a great question. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Jesus is mad. You know what we call that? The wrath of God. If Jesus is God and he's angry, what do you call that? He looks around at them with anger. Why? He's grieved in his heart. Grieved. This is grief anger. He's upset at them. Why? Because of their hardness of heart. You see, a soft heart would have been like the Messiah, the healer is here. The kingdom is upon us. God is making all things as they should have been. The dead are made alive. The lame are able to walk. The crippled are being healed. The demon possessed and oppressed are being liberated. The hungry are being fed. Instead, they're like, Sabbath, violator. You know? And, and, and he's like, I can't believe your hardness of heart. So he said to the man, stretch out your hand. In front of them all, staring him in the face, right? He's angry. Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You know, you could see them like as soon as his hand was restored. You know, and they, and they turn around, and they walk out, and they, they hold counsel with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians are the left-leaning party of the Jewish uh, people that were in bed with Rome. They were, they were liberal theologically. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees were the most conservative, orthodox, Bible-believing, like, adherents to the strictest degree of the law. So here you have the liberals and the conservatives partnering together against Jesus. They hate him that much. I mean, what's it going to take to get the left and the right together in our country? Probably going to have to get invaded by China, huh? 
Don't talk to me about foreign policy, all right? Let's not go there. So what ends up happening is this is on repeat over and over and over again. Jesus violates the Sabbath in their view, but not actually violating the Sabbath. And they hate him for it. Now, what I want to do now is show you that Jesus not only kept the Sabbath in the sense that God commanded men and women to keep the Sabbath, but he also then fulfilled the Sabbath. He also fulfilled the Sabbath. Okay? So when we see Jesus intentionally breaking their Sabbath laws, he's breaking their Sabbath laws, not the Sabbath. Okay? So let's get it right. Jesus was a strict adherence of the Ten Commandments. He didn't violate any of them. And so here, Jesus is going to fulfill in literal form the Sabbath. Let's look at it. So Jesus is on the cross here. He's dying for the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. And it is Friday, Good Friday we call it, just before the Sabbath. Since it was the day of preparation, day of preparation for what? For the Sabbath. Remember, you had to get everything ready so you didn't violate the Sabbath the next day. So you cook and you get all your stuff together and you, you know, you got to prep. We got to, we got to keep it holy on the Sabbath. So it's the day of preparation. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, Jesus crucified between two criminals. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Let's speed this up before the Sabbath hits. Let's break their legs so that they suffocate. Let's get this done. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The the blood had separated from uh, the water in his body. And now verse 38, we read this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Jump to 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, preparation for what? The Sabbath. And since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So Jesus is laying in the tomb and resting when? On the Sabbath. What's the command? You shall cease from working on the Sabbath. What did Jesus came to do? What was his work? His work was to fulfill the law. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And as he lived perfectly, the command of Sabbath keeping, he then rests from his work on the Sabbath, thus fulfilling it and completing it perfectly for who? For you and I. And so in Christ, we have rest. We rest from our labors. Now, interestingly, when we move into the New Testament, Paul affirms this truth with great clarity. Great clarity. 
In fact, in Colossians, the problem was uh, there were creeping in ideas that you had to be Christian, believe in Jesus, but you also had to fo- follow the calendar laws and the dietary laws and the, cal- and, the, and the new moon festivals and the dietary laws. And so Paul's like, look, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. There's all these unclean animals connected to the Old Testament law and things you couldn't eat. And, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now watch this. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, think about the imagery here, okay? When you have a light and there is a shadow cast, that means there's something solid that casts the shadow. Okay, so the light hits something solid and a shadow is cast. What Paul is arguing here is like, hey, the food laws, the festival laws, the Sabbath, those were all pointing to a substance, a reality. And that reality was Jesus. And so in the shadow of Jesus, we see Sabbath, dietary laws. They all pointed to Jesus. So Jesus was actually the substance that the Sabbath pointed towards. And now that we have the the substance, guess what we no longer have to deal with? The Sabbath regulations. So we've moved now quickly from don't violate this covenant, this sign of the covenant, or you'll die, to Jesus dying, fulfilling the Sabbath, resting from his labors, and now into the New Testament church, the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. I mean, that's what he says. Look, these things are a shadow. All these things shadow the substance of Christ. And to further illustrate, we could look at Romans 14, 5 and 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Even the Sabbath? Yes. Now, now Paul was a Jew. Uh, in fact, he was a Jew of Jews, right? When he, when he gives his resume, he's like, look, I was from the tribe of Benjamin, according to legalistic righteousness, faultless. If Paul thought that the Sabbath regulations were still intact, there's no way he would have said that. Some esteem every day alike, like there's no difference from the Sabbath than non-Sabbath days. And then he says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So here you have Paul saying to the Colossians and now here to the Romans, look, there are some people who they rest on the seventh day and they do it to the glory of God. That's fine. They think the day is special. They do it unto the Lord. Let them do it. Let them be convinced in their own mind. There are some days, some, some people who do not rest on the Sabbath day And they should do that unto the Lord. That's what he says. Look, let each one be convinced in his own mind. Verse six, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord 
and gives thanks to God. And so here, what you have is, there are some people who convictionally will hold to the Sabbath. Their, their conscience will not let them violate the Sabbath. Now, what I want to show you is, uh, there, there are some people, and maybe some of you are in here, so I don't want to debate you publicly, but I want you to think for a minute, okay? The first Christians worshipped on what day? What day of the week? What day of the week? Come on. The first day of the week. Right? Sunday. Resurrection day. So what we have now, they began to, to gather on the first day of the week, not the seventh day, and they began to worship, guess what? On a work day. Right? The first Christians were Jewish. The Sabbath was still in effect. First day of the week was a work day. They're worshiping on the first day of work, which was not the Sabbath. Right? And, and we have New Testament evidence that the church then began to meet on the first day of the week. Why? Because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And here we are 2,000 years later, still worshiping on what day of the week? In case you didn't realize, the calendar starts with Sunday. And then we often think of Monday as the first day of the week, but it's not. It's Sunday. And so we are actually violating the Sabbath anytime you work on Sunday or not. Or not. Because Sunday is not the Sabbath, is it? In fact, in Revelation, John calls the first day of the week the Lord's day, not the Sabbath. And so we've transitioned now from Sabbath, seventh day rest, to now worship and observance on Sunday. But nowhere in the New Testament can you find a specific verse or even an illusion that the Sabbath has transferred over to Sunday. Can't find it. And the first century church certainly didn't think it transferred because they all worked on, on the first day of the week. That's why they went, met so early in the morning. They met before work. And so what am I saying? I am saying here that God fulfilled the Sabbath in Christ for us. That's what I'm saying. Jesus is the substance and the reality that the Sabbath was always pointing to. Now you say, in what ways? Listen, do we cease from trying to earn God's favor in Christ or not? Yes. Therefore, Christ is our Sabbath rest. We stop trying to earn God's favor. We stop trying to earn his approval. We stop working to get God. Instead, Jesus works in our place. He perfectly fulfills the law. He goes to the cross in negative and he pays for our sin. And now we have soul and eternal rest, Sabbath, in Christ. We rest in him. Jesus is our Sabbath. Uh, believe it or not, Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews 4.8, if you start in chapter 3, we don't have time to do it, but you go and travel into chapter 4, uh, the argument is uh, the people of Israel were promised rest when they got into the promised land. 
but they never made it, right? Because they kept grumbling against God and they were faithless when they came to the, to the, the land of Canaan. And, and so 40 years, this generation was going to die off in the wilderness. And Joshua didn't bring the people rest. And so this is the argument here. Joshua succeeded Moses and now he's going to conquer uh, the promised land and bring the Israelites into the promised land. Verse four, I'm sorry, chapter four, eight. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. When was that? Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's he talking about? He's talking about entering the rest of God through Christ. He's talking about finding Jesus as your only hope for having security, for not having to wake up in the middle of the night and say, am I going to hell? What about all my sins? What about my guilt? What about my shame? You don't have to live in fear anymore. You can rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And so we strive to enter that rest. But the beautiful thing is, how do we enter that rest? Well, we know by faith. We enter by God's gift, which is grace, and our part is to receive faith or entrust yourself to. You give yourself wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, to God through Jesus. Jesus pays for your sins on the cross. He gets treated like he lived your life on the cross, and you get treated subsequently like you lived his perfect life. And so you rest in Jesus. Jesus himself said, come to me, all you who are heavy, burdened, and laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for what? For your souls. I will give you soul rest. Why? Because I am the Sabbath. I am the rest of God. Come to me and find rest from your labors. That's what he says. And so Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. Now, principle, here's some application. The principle of a Sabbath is a great gift. God tells us specifically that we do not have to work 24-7. Like you should take a day off. But you're not required to take the day off on Saturday or Sunday or Monday or two. You're just you're just gifted. I'll say it like that. You're gifted to take a day off. Why? Because God didn't make the human machine to work, work, work. You've heard it like this. Some people live to work and some people work to live. Which are you? Are you living for work? Is it your life? Because God didn't create you like a machine. You're supposed to also rest not only in God, but physically rest and enjoy as God did on the seventh day. He reflected at all his creative glory. 
Perhaps for you, it's recreation. We call that recreation. What do you do to recreate? Some of you ride skateboards. Some of you do not. Some of you rollerblades. Some of you do not. Some of you sit with a controller and you're recreating. Okay? That's fine. Okay? Some of you drink tea with a good, big, fat philosophy book. That's recreation for you. You have to find what recharges your soul, and you need to make sure you're doing that to God's glory. That's a gift. And so if you're burnt out, if you're stressed out, if you're like, I'm going bananas, are you resting? Have you lived into, listen, not the law, but the principle of the Sabbath? God has given us the gift of rest. Psalm 127, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. It says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to bed, eating the bread of anxious toil. Why? Because he gives to his beloved sleep. Wait a minute. So you're saying I get to sleep and that's the gift of God? Yes. Right? When you're four, you're like, I don't want to go to bed. Then when you're 40, you're like, oh God, please. I just want to go to bed. <laughs> it's amazing what 36 years will do. It's unbelievable. Okay. And, and listen, sleep is a gift of God. And so you don't have to feel guilty about sleeping. You should not be one who says, I'll sleep when I'm dead. God didn't make you a machine. You glorify God when you live according to your created nature, which needs sleep. Now listen, when I was 19 and going to school, trying to get a degree in art, I would stay up all night and just, you know, wide-eyed painting or color everywhere. And, and I'd come in all caffeined up with my project. You could do that when you're 19. Don't do that when you're 35, 45, 55, 65. You're going to die. Okay? Do that when you're 19, maybe 20. At 21, you're going to start feeling it, right? But God didn't make you to not sleep, okay? He gives you the gift of rest. And so, listen, here's, here's some application. You can go and enjoy yourself. Take a day off from work to the glory of God. Turn off your phone, like seriously, no one's going to die. No, nothing's going to burn down. Like, turn off the phone. You say, but what if someone needs to get a hold of me? When you turn it back on, they can get a hold of you. Now, for some of you, you're going to go through withdrawal. And I'm just warning you, okay? Your hands are going to start to shake. You're going to start to sweat. Some of you were, will jitter. I would encourage you, lock the phone in a drawer and give the combination to someone else. It's like Ulysses with the wax in his ear. Do not take the wax out of my ear. Don't tell me the combination, no matter what I say to you. Okay? And some of you need like some separation from your apps. Seriously. Like if you check your phone every 30 seconds, you should Sabbath from your phone and just see what God might do for you. Maybe he'll meet you. You might. Think of it as fasting. Fast from your apps. Unless you're in the founder, you better be on there checking in. <laughs> All right. I love you guys. Let's celebrate communion together. Okay. We do this every single week at Eternal City Church. And here's the specific emphasis this week. We are remembering Jesus as our Sabbath rest. He gives us the gift of rest in himself. 
He fulfills the Sabbath for us. He dies on the cross and then rests on the Sabbath literally, thus fulfilling it for us. And in Christ, we have our Sabbath rest. And then it's interesting that once we get home, home is new heavens, new earth, we are completely resting from our labors. Now, that doesn't mean we'll be lounging on couches, but in order to work to eat, work to eat, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. The curse, the curse is lifted. When we work, it's for enjoyment. When we work, it's for flourishing. It's not for survival. Okay. And so we remember Jesus when we eat of the body broken and bloodshed, and together we proclaim his death until the Lord comes. And so the worship team is going to come out. We're going to sing uh, the doxology, which is a, a classic hymn, uh, but it's got a few extra gospel verses in it. And so I think you'll really appreciate this version. We have sung it before here at Eternal City. Uh, so it's not a, a new, new song, but it's got gospel emphasis. And so as you hold the elements, sing. And then after we're done singing, I'll come out and I'll lead us all in taking communion. So don't take your communion until after we're done singing. I'll come out. We'll all do it together. If you could please stand.